That's the time of service for atonement on the 19th, 1 o'clock. And then, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the 24th. That's a Wednesday. And we'll have a 1 o'clock in the afternoon service on that first day as well. So, Wednesday the 24th at 1 o'clock, the feast begins. So, services on first day and last day at 1, and on the weekly Sabbath during at 1, and the rest are at 11 for that whole eight days, Wednesday to Wednesday. So, uh, also I mentioned that the third tide year begins after the feast this year as well, the sixth year in a seven-year cycle. Uh, third tithe is a very faith-based thing because God asks us to set aside an extra tithe during that year every third and sixth year out of, out of seven and uh, people sit down with a pencil and paper and figure their budget and have for decades that I've known and uh, it doesn't work on paper. <laughs> there isn't enough. Uh, and yet, if they go ahead and faithfully do what God has asked us to do, it just works out somehow. Uh, and a lot of it, as I was saying in the sermon the other day, has to do with attitude. If we trust God and look to Him for the answers and to make up what we can't seem to do, uh, somehow it comes. People receive blessings, somebody gives them a car, or things happen during a third tithe year. If they're faithfully trusting God and doing what He asks them to do, it somehow works out. But those who do it grudgingly and with a bad attitude and saying, why does God make me do this, or whatever the attitude may be, uh, I've heard people say, well, I just lived on credit cards for the third tithe year, and then I spend the next three years paying them off. Uh, that's not the way it's supposed to work, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I guess many of us here, most of us probably, have been going through this now for decades, so we understand. But it is faith-based, because there goes part of your income that normally you have to use. And we have to trust God to take care of us. And isn't that what this is all about? Will he find faith when he comes to the earth? And faith is tested in many, many, many different ways, and financially, of course, is one of them. But we can never go wrong if we do what God asks us to do. Let's get on to Romans 12. Up to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has spent almost the whole time discussing the racial difficulties that they were having at that time in the not only the church at Rome, but throughout the Gentile Jewish world as people were being converted, not just from Israel, but from all nations and peoples during that period of time and there were obviously going to be conflicts uh, with racism going every direction, direction you can name and he was trying to convince them that we're all one in Christ uh, and that blood physical race means nothing but are we 
of the Church of God? Are we part of God's spiritual Judaism, uh, not physical Jews? That didn't matter. So we spent an awful lot of time going through that, and there's a change here in chapter 12. It's still on the table somewhat in the context, but he goes into more, what are we to do then? Once we get past that issue, now what are we to do? And I, I, I think it is, maybe I've commented some on this already, but I think it is interesting that right now uh, I have people coming through this house daily from all over the world. Uh, I mean, name a country, well, not quite yet, but name a continent, and there's been several here from every one of them. And uh, some speak English, some not so much English. But I've traveled a lot in my life, and I've seen different peoples, but it's bringing it home to me, having them come through here on a steady basis uh, from all over the world. And sometimes rooms full of people from completely different nations are here together. And what I'm seeing is that everybody's just alike. What do people want? It doesn't matter what their race is. They want peace, security, a roof over their head, food, a chance to raise their family and love them, uh, good conditions to live under. And that's, that's from everywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's communism, some form of socialism, democracy, dictatorship. It doesn't make any difference where they're from. They all have the same basic desires and needs. If you're human, I mean, your, your strongest desire is life. We don't want to die. And beyond that, it goes down through the other things that all human beings have in common. And I think that's good for our learning, my learning right now, because we're going to have people gathering from all over the world, and we've talked about this. They're going to be from different races, uh, different prejudices, different cultures, and different languages, unless we get the gift of tongues, is going to be difficult. So, it's a preparation, I feel, for what is about to come from the body of the church in a way in the world. And it's good to grasp why God loves everybody in the world. Uh, we may look at it from a standpoint, we may have an attitude about Asian people or African people or... Polacks or whatever. But I'm finding that they're the same no matter where they come from. And we need to have mercy and love and compassion for them. And it's going to be difficult in these years ahead when God says, I'm going to plague you if you won't obey me. And yet you have to tell them, you need to be serving God because there's the answer to your problems. And that's why you need to be in Zion as a light on the hill that God is blessing so you're an example that can be pointed to that if you would obey God, 
you would have peace and security and protection and food and shelter. That's all you have to do is bow your knee to God the Father and Emmanuel the King. Nope. <laughs> That's going to be the universal answer. We got the beast and the false prophet over here. They won't call them that probably. And uh, they're promising us all these things. That's where we get our food. And it's going to be a very, very difficult situation. So I'm looking at it from God's perspective. Here he is, having loved the whole world so much he sent his only begotten son. And yet at the same time, he's pronouncing that 90, well over 90% of the people of the earth have to die. And die under very horrible conditions. And that... God sees it in an overall sense greater than we do because He knows how He can resurrect them on the other end. We read about it, but He knows what He can do. And how, how much of an emotional challenge and roller coaster is it for the Father and the Son to know what has to occur before peace can come to the whole world? And how much more so with us embroiled in the middle of it. And I'm prefacing where we're going right now with that on purpose because Paul spends quite a bit a little quite a little time in chapters twelve and thirteen telling us how to conduct ourselves while we're here in the world. Because we're not like the Father and the Son that are away from it and above it. Now, they're very much involved because they see everything that's going on here. We see a little bit of it, but they see it all. And what a cacophony of noise and sin is coming on this earth and the stench to them. So, they want it over. He even says he'll do a short work on the earth. Now, to you and me, it may seem long so far, but in his mind, he would like to get this over with too. But he has a time frame, and he's got it all set. And he does tell us that he will cut it short at the end by somewhat, lest there be no flesh saved alive. So this is what we're headed into right now. And the cracks are getting stronger. So he, he delves into this here in chapter 12. He gives glory to God and tells us we all ought to be thankful for where we are, no matter what our race, that God has called us out and made us spiritual Jews, and sons of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Moses, and of him. So he says, with that background then, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, there's reference there, of course, to the time when they sacrificed animals. Uh, but we don't do that anymore. We are to sacrifice ourselves. Now, Christ sacrificed himself by coming here and living as a human being for 33 and a half years, in going through what human beings go through. Now, he didn't go through old age here, like some of us are doing, which is a challenge in itself. On the other hand, he lived up to 33 and a half years, which is the optimal age for a human being 
since life has been cut to essentially 70 years and was cut off right in the middle of life. Now, it may sound awful to have to be cut off at age 70, 89, or 100, but it's even more, wouldn't it have been worse if you were cut off at 33 and a half, right when your family was young, you were full of energy and health and the best that it could be. That's when he was cut off. So he had to go through that. If we live past that, we don't. But from 33 and a half, it's basically downhill from about that age. If you look at pro athletes, they last until about age 33, and they lose a step, half a step, not as good as they were. And some, because they have excellent talent above others, can go to 34, 5, 6, and still perform at a fairly high level. But it is a rarity indeed for one to go 38, 39, 40 years and still compete with the 24-year-olds because they, they start downhill at 33, 34 years old. Same time Christ, right at the very peak of life, had to die. So if he lived in this life, see, he didn't, he didn't have a family either. He didn't have that blessing as a young man. I'm sure he desired it. I know he did because he was tempted in all points like we are. But he was not allowed that. And then he was cut off right at the time when that should have been where he was in life. And he didn't get to go there. So if he lived under these conditions and then presented himself to be killed, sacrificed, is it not reasonable to say that we're given something better, really, than that? We get to continue to live, not die at 33 and a half. So isn't it reasonable to say we should be a living sacrifice? You get to live, but go ahead and sacrifice yourself. That's why other scriptures say to be of a ready mind. Paul uses that expression. Where we're ready, willing, and able, and want to help others wherever and however we can. That's the kind of sacrifice we give. Whether it be to widows and orphans, whether it to be other brothers and sisters in the faith, or even sometimes to those who are not in the faith when they have needs, uh, which they do. Uh, so, be that. It takes a certain amount of training to look outward to serve others when by nature we are self-serving. We want to be comfortable, secure, to have, and it is not by nature that human beings want to give. And we have to be taught that by parents who understand and care from an early age. Because we come right out of the box ready to be selfish. Those are my toys. Uh, that's my food, <laughs> you know. That's just innate within us from the time we're little. We'll bellow our lungs out if we don't get what we want and get comfort the way we want it right now. So, what do parents do the first years of our lives? They teach us, don't be selfish. Share, give, let others have peace. The world is not just yours. 
and on and on. So, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice does not come naturally and easily. And we have to, with the Spirit of God, train ourselves to be that way. Ready to help anytime, anywhere we possibly can when others have needs. And not only present yourself as a sacrifice for others, but be holy, like God, at the same time. Uh, Holiness means living like God lives, thinking like God thinks. And we have this whole book to tell us how he thinks and how he acts. And then we're to read it and learn and then pray for his spirit to help us accept and make that part of us so that we can truly be a holy vessel. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, which is acceptable to God. Uh, If we're giving, if we're serving, if we're helping, if we're loving, we're preparing ourselves for the millennium and the great white throne judgment, are we not? Because those people are going to come out of this holocaust at the end, the ones that live in very, very uh, circumstances of privation. They'll be, probably all of them, very skinny, very thin, almost starved to death, diseased, uh, having lost most of their family, their friends, to death. They will be in very, very pitiful condition, pitiable condition. And we will have been trained in this life and then given extra power at the resurrection to have an attitude of sacrifice to them. Now that's what Christ had for the whole world by coming and dying, so that's what makes it a reasonable service, a reasonable thing for us to do is to have the same attitude toward the people of this world that God has. Ultimately, that they be saved. Every last one of them is what he's hoping. Now, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth with a few who simply will not accept God. But I think it will be relatively few because God has the power, one way or another, to save. And killing them all is a good start on the road to salvation for them. It will humble them. So that's what he instructs us to do. That's a reasonable thing for us to do. And at the same time, verse 2, there's a contrast there between what we need to do and that which we shouldn't do. Verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world... But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world is not living according to the will of God. The world is living according to the dictates of human nature and Satan the devil. And we are not to be like them. We're not to conform ourselves to them. Uh, That's what peer pressure is all about as kids grow up and as we are adults in the world, is you want to be like those around you and have those around you like you and accept you. And therefore, we tend to adapt ourselves to be like those around us. And if it's the world, we tend to conform to the world. 
but he says, no, we have to be transformed. And our mind has to be renewed to be like God's mind, to think like Him in a world that doesn't think like God. And that's not easy, because everything in this world will lead your thinking away from God. Everything that's out there will lead you away from God. So you have to be very, very careful to be able to live here and not take on the culture, the thinking of the world. Now, what does an ambassador for a country do? He goes into a foreign country, and he has all these people around him. He's not, well, maybe in the embassy, but he's not surrounded by Americans anymore in their culture. He's surrounded by a totally different culture, whatever country. And he is there to represent America, to continue to think like an American, act like an American, a good one if you can find one, is what he's to be like. He's not there to become a Chinese or an Afghan. He's there to represent America for the best that it can be and the best that the ambassador can be. So he's not there to conform to their culture and their way of thinking. He's there to get along with them and to try to impress them about what's good about our culture. So we're not here to be like the whole world around us and even the American culture, because that's what we're part of, but it's ungodly. So as ambassadors for Christ... We're here to represent the kingdom of God and to be as much like God at the home office as we can be. Holy, obedient to God. Not conformed to this world, but conformed, transformed into godliness. And that is not an easy transformation. It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of thought, a lot of meditation, a lot of self-control to cause our mind to think godly thoughts instead of thoughts of the world around us. So our mind has to be renewed. For I say through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now he's been going through that on a racial basis because you had people from all different races there in the church at Rome who thought more highly of themselves than they did somebody of a different race. So he spent 11 chapters saying, no, none of you are any better than anybody else, and you're all inferior to God. So be humble, be meek. And then he tells us what our attitude really ought to be and reminds us again in that context, don't put yourself above anybody else. Don't think highly of yourself and exalt yourself. Those who exalt themselves will be abased, and those who abase themselves will be exalted. So, let God do that. That's His business, not ours. But to think soberly. We need to be sober, serious-minded about this. If we take it easy, lukewarm, Laodicean about it, uh, we won't make that transformation. You have to think seriously and soberly and meditate on God's ways and know what they are 
to even know what the perfect will of God is. And then getting your mind in line with it is another challenge altogether. <laughs> I mean, we can, we can talk about it, but doing it is something else. So it takes serious, sober consideration and thought. It doesn't come easy. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. He goes through that in Corinthians in quite a bit of detail as well. We're all in the same body, and members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace or the mercy of God that is given to us, whether prophecy or, or preaching, speaking, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, to the limit of your faith. The amount of faith that you have is where you should go. Push the envelope a little bit. Uh, you can't really preach and teach what you don't believe, can you? You better believe it yourself if you're going to tell it to somebody else. That's the challenge. Or if it's ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching. Or he that exhorts on exhortation. He that gives, let him do it with simplicity, that is, should be more with liberally, liberality, generously. Uh, not begrudging giving, but doing it with a willing heart and attitude. He that rules with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. So, whatever of these things that he's talking about here, we find within our character, our personality, our calling uh, to do, we need to do it with a serious, sober mind, knowing that there's a lot at stake here, like eternal life, like eternal bliss. Uh, that's what we're dealing with. So, uh, what, whatever lot we have been given, we should perform that the best we can, as seriously as we can. He uses the body, uh, uh, as he does in 1 Corinthians 12. We're not all the finger, we're not all the brain, we're not all the heart, we're not, you know, what part of the body are we? I don't know that we can fully define that, <laughs> you know. How do you know the difference, spiritually speaking, between a thumb and a finger, or a, or a toe, or whatever we might be? Uh, he just uses that analogy that we're all different, and everybody has different gifts and abilities. So whatever talents, you can tie talents in. You use those talents, you use those abilities that you need to recognize that you have. Everybody's different. We all have different things we can do to help the body work better. Physically speaking, your body probably has some problems if you're beyond age 20 and maybe even before that. And you can kind of go through it and start listing the things that you would like to be better about your body. Uh, I was amazed one time when I sat down and, and thought, you know, what is wrong with me? I'm speaking of the physical list. 
And man, it got nearly as long as my arm of things that didn't work as well as they ought to work. My baseball elbow, my football knee, my uh, basketball finger, you know, my lungs and my coughing and my knees that don't work well and just on and on it goes of things that could be better as we age and don't work as well. The eyes, the ears, the digestion, you know, on and on it goes. Now, wouldn't it be nice if the body were perfectly fitted together and all parts worked well? You'd be much, much happier as a human being if everything still worked good. But it doesn't. So you limp along, uh, trying to get along as best you can with what you got left. Now, we've got a world that the whole body of the world is sick, and God describes it that way in Isaiah 1, that, that our nation is sick from head to foot. Every part of it is backward, upside down, sick, ill, uh, non-functioning properly. That's what all Israel is. And that's what the church has become. So, I use the physical analogy, and he does here with the body. But the spiritual analogy is what he introduced us with. That we become spiritually whole and spiritually mature and holy and a living sacrifice. Because we're going to age and is appointed all men once to die. So physically speaking, we're just going to, until God renews here in the end for a, for a bit to get a job done, we're just going to get worse and worse until we finally cork off. But we don't need to be going that way spiritually. Instead of getting worse spiritually, we need to be getting better in that category. Physically, we'll get worse. Spiritually, we need to be doing better. And that's a challenge in itself. Because when you have trouble reading or hearing, uh, then to even read the Bible becomes a challenge. I'm speaking to you, Sharon. <laughs> you know, there she is, can hardly see to get around at all, and reading the Bible is a total challenge. We take it for granted uh, and don't do it as much as we should. She can't, you know. And I hope she's healed soon and can. And all of us with our mental, physical, spiritual problems. So he urges us here to use what you have been given to the best you can. It's not wrong to recognize where it isn't vain or egocentric to recognize if you have talents and abilities. Because he says, use them. Don't bury them. Well, if you're going to use them, you've got to know what they are. <laughs> you know? So analyze. What, what do you do well? How could you help? Some people uh, can help with this. Other people can help with that. Somebody knows electronics. Somebody knows mechanics. Somebody knows how to clean a toilet. Somebody, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, we need to physically recognize our talents and use them to help ourselves and help others. But what about our spiritual talents 
Those are more important. Do you have a strength in faith and trusting and believing in God? Can you encourage others to have living faith? Do you have, as a human being, more patience than the average bear? Well, help others to be patient. <laughs> or, or whatever it might be. Uh, John the Apostle had more love than the other apostles. And it showed to Christ. So, if you have a compassion and a love for people by nature, then use that to help them respond in love as well. So, know your talents. Know your strengths. You know, he even says, he shows here that there are differing things that people have. And he goes into it a little bit more even there in 1 Corinthians. About what are your strengths? Well, okay. You can't really help people in the areas that you're weak. Because you might pull them down (laughs) to your level of weakness in whatever area that might be. But where you might be strong, help them there. He says, encourage the weak uh, and help wherever you can. So shouldn't we all do some self-analysis? If he says, use your talents and you'll be rewarded according to how you use those talents, then we very well better find out what they are and then begin to use them as best we can to encourage, strengthen, and help others. So it's, it's both a physical and a spiritual uh, thing that we do. Iron sharpens iron, he says. So if you have an area that you're sharper in spiritually than you are in a, a you know, some... We, we all have that. You, you get a knife off the shelf and it has some sharper spots and some duller spots. And sometimes if the point down here has been dulled by too much use, if you get up near the handle, oh, it's still sharp up here, it'll cut. So, you're the same as a human being. You're sharper in some areas than you are in others. So, use the sharper spots you've got to help others sharpen up. And maybe maybe they're strong in an area where you're not so weak and they can help you sharpen up. We're here as a body. You know, if if my foot's dragging, or I've got a big splinter in it and I can't walk, let's say, the rest of my body wants to do something about that big piece of wood in my foot. So my brain thinks about it and says, what can I do about that? And it says, hand, why don't you get some tweezers or a needle? And foot, why don't you turn yourself up here, if you can still do it? And... uh, Let's work together to try to get this thing out of here. Well, Christ uses that, doesn't he? About the log and the splinter in your eye. And you get this one out so you can help somebody with the moat in theirs. It's all the same stuff. The body needs to work together to help wherever there's a problem. And sometimes it requires some... uh, discernment of where a need is. Some people can see 
better than others when somebody is in need. They have a, a discernment and an ability to grasp and to see a look, to see an attitude, to see a look in the eye, to, to hear a word and say, I wonder if I could help with that. I wonder if I could encourage. They, they look down today. You know, sometimes somebody just looks... Cool. It may be because they have a headache. It may be because they have a trial. Who knows what it is, but the symptoms are pretty obvious. What can you do about it? In some cases, maybe nothing. Pray. But, hey, that's something. And sometimes a word of encouragement. Sometimes, would you like a cup of coffee? It might help your headache, you know. There are different ways to solve different problems. But if we love people, we will be more aware of the needs they have because we care about them enough to notice. You know, you can go through life not even noticing people if you're not careful. Some people have a more, more capacity to notice than others. I think that's the way John was, John the, the Apostle. So find your strengths and use them to help somebody. And if you need, if you have weaknesses, find somebody that's strong in that area. But you know, that's not the way human beings tend to look at it. Birds of a feather flock together. <clears throat> so if I have this weakness, I'll go to somebody that has the same weakness so we can commiserate together and have a, a dual pity party instead of a single pity party. Uh, drunks don't tend to congregate around non-drinkers. They tend to drink, I mean, they tend to congregate in bars with other drinkers because that may be their weakness. So that's where they go. Others have weakness with something else and they find other people that have that. I've, I've seen that in church over and over and over again where people in the church will start going over to dinner and spending a lot of time with people that have the exact same problem they do. They can't help each other. They can commiserate. They can identify with each other. But they don't make much progress getting past whatever the problem is. Now, if they got a problem with this, they need to go to somebody that has a strength in that area and helps pull them out of it instead of stay in it. So there's an awful lot here about us being a part of the body and helping the rest of the body when it has need or hurt, and the strength in the body helping others who need strength. Verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy, is a better translation than dissimulation. That's, an, that's a word that we in English don't understand. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, and cleave to that which is good. So, in each one of us, there's a certain amount of evil. Thoughts, actions, whatever. Uh, but find that which is good, and hang on to that, cleave to it. And that's in line with what I just said. Find people who are strong where you're weak, and maybe they can strengthen you, and find others where you have strength in their week, and maybe you can strengthen and encourage them. So, 
look to the good and not to the evil. You're living in a world that is evil. Don't be conformed to it. Be transformed. He's just he's, he's illuminating that particular theme here. So, and in that, be kindly affectioned one to another. Kindness, love, gentleness, uh, care for each other with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Are we willing to put others ahead of ourselves sometimes in order to help them? Now, that's what a living sacrifice does. If you do something for somebody that doesn't cost you anything, is that a sacrifice? No, that's something you enjoy. It's when you don't feel like it or don't want to or it costs you time or money or energy or whatever that it becomes sacrifice. I mean, there are some people you can sit down and visit with and you just love to be with them. You enjoy their company. So spending time with them is no sacrifice to you. That's just fun for you. But now somebody that's disagreeable or you don't care as much for or have an attitude or something, and you try to make yourself available to them, now there's a sacrifice. So, kindly affection one to another, and prefer them. Now, he does not enjoin us to love them more than we love ourselves. We don't have to do that. But we need to love them as much as we love ourselves. Now, there's a tall order in itself, because we love ourselves an awful lot, and we do everything we can to make ourselves comfortable in any and every way. So if we can love others as much as we love ourselves and be as solicitous of their comfort and peace of mind, uh, we're doing a lot. It takes an awful lot to do that much. So, what about attitude? Uh, preferring one another, not slothful in business, lazy Business people don't make a very good living usually. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do it 20 hours a day because other things suffer, your family, your health, everything else. But when you work, work hard, not lazy, whether it's working for yourself or someone else. Fervent in spirit, not lukewarm, not... not you know when you get around people that uh, are excited about life, who are excited about what's going on, uh, it tends to pick you up and make you more excited about what's going on. You know, the life of the party kind of picks the party up. If you had a party that doesn't have any life to it, nobody has the life, it dies. I had an animated conversation with some people last night about the world and the nation and what all's going on. And uh, those people were pretty excited, pretty fervent about their feelings about a lot of things. And 
so we discussed a lot of things that we could have thought about, but didn't. <laughs> but the conversation didn't want to die because there were people there fervent in spirit about what they believed and thought ought to be. But had they not cared, we'd all said, oh, I think I'll go to bed. But it was a lively, productive conversation, I would say. Uh, because there was some fervency of spirit there. Serving the eternal. So, all that we do in business or with others, we need to be interested in, excited about. Why would you want to be bored all your life? If you don't have fervency in spirit and a desire to do things and to say things and to be a part of things... You get bored. And that's why people, they have to have music or screen or somebody or noise or, or something to keep from being bored. But if you're living life in the fervency of the Spirit of God, you won't be bored. You've got too much going on. Think about eternity. How are we going to be interested and excited throughout eternity. I don't know that I fully... I know I don't fully grasp that. I mean, I can get bored in one day if I let myself just sit and do nothing. What about if I had to live forever and ever and ever that way? Like, like the story of the Protestant went to heaven sitting on a cloud and said, man, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. <laughs> Something to do. Well, in God's kingdom, it won't be like that, of course. We'll have plenty to do. And we won't have time to get bored. But, but God is still excited about life, having lived forever. He's still excited about life. He is so interested in life that He wants us to share His life, His vibrancy, His fervency. So, He's not bored. And if we think like Him, we won't be bored any either. There's so much that needs to be done spiritually and physically. There's no time to be lukewarm. So, <clears throat> rejoicing in hope. Didn't we talk about a lively hope, I think, earlier in the same book? A lively hope. Uh, excited about what is to come. Not worried about whether we're going to make it based on our past conduct, but trying to fix our current conduct and tomorrow's conduct and live in a lively, hopeful way. Expecting. Expectancy. You know, there, you, can, you can be a lady and not be pregnant, and you're not living in expectancy, right? Maybe you're living in the hope of becoming expectant because you want a child, but until you actually become pregnant, you're just wishing. Now, once it happens, then you live with a lively hope. Because you expect something to happen there. And then as the baby begins to grow, and you can feel it move and kick, then you have an even livelier hope. And when you don't feel it kick, you say, oh no, did it die? 
after the fourth or, fourth or fifth one, you don't notice it so much. But first or second, yeah. Is it alive? And oh, there it kicked. And then your hope goes back up. So God wants us to live expectantly with a lively hope that this thing's going to happen. Now, when you have that kind of hope, aren't you more excited about doing what you need to do to make sure that hope happens? Yeah. So he doesn't want us saying, oh, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Poor pitiful me. I'm not going to make it. Get rid of that attitude. Be conformed to think like God who lives in faith and hope that we will make it. He has a greater expectancy of us being in his kingdom than we do. And the capacity to get us there. If we'll just yield. And if we don't yield, and he's called us, he's got his eye on us, and he's not going to let us get away with that. Have you noticed that? Notice what he did to the whole church? He didn't let us get away with being lackadaisical and lukewarm. Now, straighten up. Okay. How are we doing? Still got time to go. Still got growth that needs to be done. Transformation that needs to occur. We can't afford to settle down like we were in Worldwide and just go through the motions. We need to be more excited than that. And that excitement has to come from he who is Mr. Excitement. That's Christ himself and the Father. Spiritual excitement comes from them. Rejoicing in hope, again in verse 12, patient in tribulation. We discuss patience. You who are more patient with things when they go wrong need to set an example for those who are impatient and want their answer now. If, God, you don't give me what I want now, I'm going to be in a bad attitude, Habakkuk. And then get over it. Continuing instant in prayer. You have a thought. You have a need. You have a bad attitude. Instantly able to talk to God about it, even in your own mind. Uh, without audibly saying a word, but sending up a very quick prayer. Did you ever nearly wishbone somebody or have a head-on collision? You said a pretty short prayer pretty fervently, didn't you? Oh, God, help, or oh, my God, or whatever comes to your mind. It's, it's, it's not an oh, my God, like the world uses as a cliche. It's God, help. It's a cry out for Him. Uh, we need to be close enough to God that we can instantly make contact with Him as much as possible because those needs come every day. Distributing to the necessity of saints, helping those who need help wherever we can. That's what Third Tithe is all about, really, is putting part of our money back, which is a sacrifice, to be able to help the widow, the orphan, the elder, the whoever, uh, that the Bible says to give it to. There are people who do not qualify for it. 
And so the Bible lays out who can have it and who should not have it. And uh, worldwide had it turned into the church so that they could distribute. They didn't always do it properly because sometimes the ministers were very well taken of in nice motels at the feast and the widows had to sleep three to a bed, so to speak. Uh, that was an imbalance and something that was not done right. Whatever the ministry had, the widows and orphans should have had at least equal to that. Now, how much emphasis God put on taking care of the widow and the orphan throughout the Bible? And yet that got diminished because the ministry was thought to be better than the people. No, it wasn't. That was wrong. It was out of balance. Uh, distributing to the necessity of saints and given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Now, there's a tough one right there. <laughs> uh, where was I here? My, I lost where I was reading. Um, yeah, clear up in 14, I went on down. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. We've got people here who are persecuting us. We need to be very careful with the things we say and not curse them in attitude or in mind. But love them? Yes. We're not supposed to come to hate. We're supposed to love them. Now, we don't love a lot of things about them, maybe. There are a lot of things that God doesn't love about the people in this world. He hates sin, and there's an awful lot of it going on, but he doesn't hate the people. He wants them all to be saved and to live eternally. He wants them to repent and change. So I try to make it a point to pray for those who persecute me and accuse me, that they will be in the kingdom of God. Now, I know that they may have to go through what the rest of the world is about to go through in order to get there. Because God says that the rebels of Anatoth, all of them, men, women, and children, and Jeremiah, specifically and directly, are going to go into the tribulation, famine and pestilence and the sword, and that they will all die there. Man, woman, and child will all die there. Couldn't be plainer in the Scripture. That's scary. But we do have Zechariah 12, I think it is, 11 or 12. 12, it's got to be 12. That says that about a third of those church members who go into the tribulation, of which it's going to be more than 90% of what was the church, will go in, including these here who have rebelled against what God is trying to do here, will go into it and die there. They'll all die there. But I hope they repent first. I hope they turn to God when those conditions come and they say, oh no, I need to change my attitude. Because most of the church is not going to wake up based on us being spewed out. It's only a 10% remnant that's going to come and faithfully serve God in building the spiritual and physical temple 
and be a light to the world from Zion. About 10%. Take a few of those, throw them out of your apron too. So it's sad what has happened to the church. It's sad what's about to happen to our nation and the world on a physical level. But it's coming. And it's coming like a freight train now. It's not far off. And I don't want to see my friends and neighbors here that I've loved and been close to before all this happened go into that. But that's what God says is going to happen. So pray they repent. Pray they're in the kingdom of God. I would said repent now, not have to go there. But I don't think it's going to happen. Attitudes are too polarized. It's too much negativity. So, but don't hate them. Don't curse them. Love them. And hope that it changes. And at the same time, hope that you change. I hope that I change. I hope that we all can be what we need to be. So all we're doing is praying that we be what we should be and they be what they should be and have love and compassion and hope that they are in the kingdom of God. There's nobody here that I would not want to be in the kingdom of God on this property. Nobody. I wouldn't want to see some of them go there with the attitudes they've currently got because it'd mess the kingdom up. And sometimes my attitudes would mess the kingdom up. So... Uh, how can I throw rocks? i got to get me straightened out. And try to set an example for others to help them straighten themselves out. So we have to be careful about our attitude. Uh, he's just given Christian living principles and godly principles here. Once he finally got past this, quit stabbing each other over race. <laughs> All be humble. Now, let's talk about what we need to do here in chapter 12. Verse 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. In other words, understand, see, what people are going through. And if they're having a good time, rejoice with them. Oh, you got a blessing. You know what human beings tend to do when somebody else gets a blessing? Get jealous. How'd you get blessed? Or, I got blessed, what's the matter with you? (laughs) You know, it it goes every different direction. Does everybody just rejoice when somebody wins the lottery? Oh, I'm so happy you won the lottery. I'm going to rejoice with you, if you'll share with me. But it isn't human nature to truly from the heart, rejoice with someone who has a blessing, maybe. Because human nature wants to be a little bit jealous. So he's saying, don't be that way. If they're rejoicing, just be happy for them. And if they've got trouble and they're weeping, don't look down upon them and say, if you'd straighten up, you know, God wouldn't chasten you like that. (laughs) No. If they're having trouble, whatever it might be, then weep with them. If they're crying, cry with them. If they're sad, be sad with them. Don't drag them down, but be compassionate and care about what they're going through. And help all every way you can to encourage. That's all he's telling us to do, is to truly, fervently love one another. 
we come here to hear this, then we have a potluck, and we have an opportunity to converse and communicate and love one another. And through the week, as we have interaction, to be caring and loving of one another and to help wherever we can in whatever way we can, mentally, physically, however. Verse 16, Be of the same mind one toward another. Same mind toward everybody. Here to help, have compassion, love, encourage everybody. Uh, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Don't raise yourself above others and think I'm better than you or whatever. But have compassion and love and mercy and interest in those who are having problems. Uh, whatever those problems may be. Be not wise in your own conceits. Egocentric, selfish, vain. Uh, there's no room for that. How can the eye say to the ear, I'm better than you? They each perform a different function, but one's not better than the other. I've thought about that over the years. If I were to lose one of my five physical senses, which one would I be willing to dispose of first? My eyes? My ears? My taste? My smell? Touch? Wouldn't it be awful if you couldn't touch? You couldn't feel, had no sensation? I, I know somebody that has no sense of taste whatsoever and hasn't had for decades. And eats only to live. I mean, there's, there's no sense of pleasure, no taste. So it's just all like, well, even cardboard has a taste. But this lady has none. So she says, okay, I should eat, and does. Now that's really eating to live. Uh, not living to eat, as somebody here likes to quote. Some of us live to eat, and others eat to live. And that one's skinny, and some of us are fatter, so he likes to use it on us. But, uh, but we'll resent it to some degree. But there's a lady that has no taste whatsoever. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to lose that. But I think my eyes and my ears, that would, be, that would be a tough choice, whether you could not see or could not hear. Tough one. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Just because they did it to you doesn't need you need to get it to the, do it to them. I mean, even verbally we can do that. Somebody offends us in some way, so we'll get snippy back at them and offend back the other direction. Sometimes we just need to swallow our vanity and our ego and get on with life instead of having our little feelings hurt. If it be possible, here's a big one, 18. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Now there is a tall order. As much as you can possibly muster, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes that is simply not possible. But he says, as is possible, and as much as you possibly can achieve it, do it. 
It's, it's a goal. It's a purpose. Not always attainable, because it has to work both directions. <laughs> you know, if somebody's for war, didn't David say that in the Psalms? I want peace, but they're for war. We sing it in one of our hymns. And he couldn't have peace on his own. It took both sides. So, as much as we can, try to live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Didn't Christ say, do not offend? Don't do anything to offend anybody. And then he also said, do not take offense. Do not be offended. So don't either give it and don't take it. How easily are we offended? They didn't show me enough respect. They didn't show me any love. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. They spoke not so nicely to me. And I'm offended, and I'm going to take my ball and go home. Now, what it means is suppress your ego, suppress your vanity, su- suppress your feelings of self. Just don't let it offend you. Oh, okay, well, they must be having a bad day. I'm not going to take offense. They were pointing the finger at me. That's okay, they got the right guy. You know, I've been accused of a lot of things I didn't do. But I could probably tell them a lot of things I did. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. (laughs) You know. But, hey, let it roll off your back like water off a duck's back. Just don't take offense. What does it do when you take offense? Upsets you. Doesn't upset them. Probably pleases them. They stab at you and, and you get upset. Hey, that's what they wanted. Don't let it happen. Just don't take offense. Just shed it off. And that's a big one. Swallow your vanity, swallow your ego, and just move on. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Eternal. If people treat you bad, let God handle it. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. It's, it's a general principle. Uh, sometimes there's not much you can do, but do what you can. And uh, if you react in kindness and so on, uh, then they might, they might think about their own attitude. I, I think we have to be careful with that here. Uh, I kind of go on just basically ignoring because what can you do? I'm not going to I'm not going to react to what is shoved at me hopefully I'll just let it go but I get criticized if I give in in some ways and do good for my enemies here and your enemies well, you're just giving in to the enemy. Not necessarily. Maybe, maybe not. But you know what? I got faith that God will take care of it. I believe He will take care of it because He said He will. So if I wind up giving Him a warranty deed, 
That's doing good to my enemy. It's what they want. All right. Under certain conditions, let them have it. Let God take care of it. If they want to lie, steal, defraud, that's God's business. I need to do what's best for us. And at the same time, not do evil to our enemies. So sometimes, give them what you want. Didn't Christ say, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. That's your reward. That's all you get. You won't be in the kingdom of God, but if you really want something on this earth that bad, okay, that's your reward. Have it. Now, I blow hot and cold on that. Sometimes I don't want to give an inch. And then I say, God will take care of this. I can't avenge what they're trying to do to us or to me. Let God take care of it. He's already told me what He's going to do. Now, i got a crisis there. And the crisis is, do I believe God in faith that He will take care of whatever problems we got here because He sent us here for a purpose. And if we do our part, He is going to fulfill His purpose here And he's already said he'll purge the rebels from among us, and he's going to put them in the tribulation. Now, do I believe that? Or do I drum up as much money to spend on as many lawyers as I can to try to fight? Now, is Paul giving us some clues here, or is he not? (laughs) On the way we treat our enemies. What did Christ do? He didn't answer a word. He just let them do what they wanted to do. And he is our greatest example. So sometimes maybe we're fighting for something that we had best leave in God's hands. And I think we're better off for that. Not always easy. And it doesn't always agree with our what we want and our nature. No, my nature is to put it to them. But I fought with that now for years on what really should it be, and I've been kind of back and forth at times. But vengeance is God's. He'll take care of it. I'm not worried about the $40,000 of rent that was stolen. God knows that. He'll take care of that. Besides, I still get enough to eat, don't you? One way or another. If your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Sounds like Sermon on the Mount to me. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what he said at the very beginning of the chapter. Don't conform to the evil around you. Be transformed to the good of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the whole point of the chapter. Let's stop there.